0: I need a child volunteer oh there's so many you right here because you're the closest I actually need you to go to my office and on my desk is my iPad where my sermon notes live unreal this is what we're doing I just told someone this morning, we're never trying to run a slick production around here and thank God because I could not pull it off. I could not pull it off. Hey, just a quick note while we're standing here awkwardly looking at one another. Um, The the membership class, we were supposed to have it last weekend uh, and there was some snow that came. Uh, So we've moved it to this weekend, but if you weren't signed up, but maybe this weekend is one you could do and last wasn't. Um, just mention something to me so I know how many people to, to plan for, but we'd love to have you. It's really, it's just a class covering what it is that we believe, what are the core things you've done it, thank you, that we believe um, as Christians and why we believe it from Scripture. It's a, I, th- I think, a helpful and enjoyable time. So uh, if you have never been through that before, consider doing it again. We actually have some people that have been through it before that are doing it again because it's just that enjoyable. That's what I'm going with, uh, anyway. So, it's the food. It's the food. Uh, there's going to be some good food this go around. All right, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter ten. Thankfully, we trust in the Word of God to do all the heavy lifting around here, and not our creativity and slickness, or we'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Romans chapter 10, we're picking up where we left off last week as we make our way through this glorious epistle. We are going to be in verse 5, and we are covering for us in this book a giant chunk of real estate this morning, going all the way to verse 13. I don't know how we'll do it. Settle in. Hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your living supernatural inerrant word for this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, that it's by your Spirit working through your Word that you've made us alive. It's by your Spirit working through your Word that we're transformed into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, by your Spirit, through your Word this morning, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in and through us. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified, as we sit under the authority of your word, and I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an there's a author and pastor who, who wrote about, he lived in Portland, Oregon, and he wrote about a place he often traveled called the Marquam, Marquam Bridge in Portland. It was a bridge built in the 1960s, and it was designed specifically to accommodate an east-running freeway that would run from Portland to Mount Hood. The problem was they never actually built that freeway after they built the bridge, and so as you traveled on the Marquam Bridge, when you got to the Mount Hood exit, it was just totally blocked off, and the bridge just ended. You couldn't drive there. The bridge would just stop And so if you were traveling from Portland to Mount Hood using that bridge that they designed to get you there, you would have no hope of ever getting there. You could see Mount Hood in the distance. You could see that it was there. You could see where you wanted to get, but you could never, ever get there via the Mount Hood Freeway because the Mount Hood Freeway doesn't exist. Well, that's what Paul's going to do for us in this text. He's going to show us two paths, two roads that we could take to get to justification. Again, as we've been going through the book of Romans, justification means right standing with God, declared righteous in God's sight. Paul's going to show us now two roads we could take and how one of them could never, ever get us there. Just like the Mount Hood Freeway exit on the Marquand Bridge, it doesn't exist. So last week, we saw Paul brokenhearted over his Jewish brothers and sisters. In verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire and prayer is for their salvation. They'd been given so much by God. They had been given the revelation of God in the Old Testament and Scripture. They'd been chosen by God, but they had missed it. He says in verse 2 that they have zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. We see this around us all the time. As we talked about last week, there is lots of spiritual, religious energy and confidence that accompanies this. Everyone is sure that what they believe to be true about God is right, yet it's often based on no knowledge whatsoever. It is just their gut feeling. It is just what what feels right to them. What's what's this knowledge Paul's talking about? It's not according to knowledge. In context, again, Paul's been talking about justification. Justification. Right standing with God on the basis of faith. And he says they have no knowledge about that whatsoever. So all of their zeal, all of their passion, all of their energy for God is worse than worthless. Verse 3 says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Again, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God, but it's not a secret knowledge. It's not something... That, that only a couple people can figure out, and these poor people didn't know. It's a revealed knowledge. God had, had revealed this. They knew it. It wasn't that they weren't smart enough or didn't have enough information. It's that they would not submit to God's righteousness. And so Paul makes this statement then in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so what Paul's going to do now as we continue on is expound on that thought. He's going to explain exactly what he means in saying that. He's going to continue to destroy and rip down the notion that anyone could ever work their way into right standing with God, ever work their way into righteousness, and he's instead going to establish that the only road you can ever take to get to right standing with God is to trust in Christ's perfect righteousness. That's the only road that leads to justification, just like trying to get to Mount Hood. Via the Marquam Bridge. If you want to approach God based on your own works, he is totally unreachable. That that way to God does not exist. So look at verse 5 with me. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, the problem here, as we said last week, is not the law. Paul already told us that in chapter 9 of Romans verse six when he says it 's not as though the Word of God has has failed there 's nothing wrong with the law the law is not flawed we are flawed that is the problem and so paul says if if you want to earn your righteousness if that 's what you want to do, if you think you can earn your justification here 's how you can do it be perfect just be perfect be perfect from the moment of your conception though <laughs> And, and, and then perfect, and that's how you'll do it. The only problem is that's completely impossible. We have failed at that before we are born, thanks to the imputed sinfulness credited to us of our father Adam. We have no hope. Romans 5, verse 10 says, here's the state of everybody who's ever been born except the Lord Jesus Christ. We are enemies of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does that mean? It means it's impossible. It's impossible for this kind of person to earn their way To salvation, there is no way. Sinful men and women, enemies of God, children of wrath, slaves to sin, dead in sin. Paul says, "There's no way that person could ever earn right standing with God through their own efforts. It's already lost before they ever start." And so, if that's how we're going to seek righteousness by just trying to manage our levels of not doing the bad stuff and doing the good stuff, we will never ever get there. It is, in fact, ignorance, and that's what Paul's talking about. The law was never meant to be our avenue to salvation. It was meant to be, it was not meant to be the road we travel to get to the destination of right standing with God. It, it was meant to show us we can't do that. We can't walk that road. We can't travel that road. We could never work our way to God. It would be easier for us to climb to the moon on a rope made of water than it would be to earn righteousness with God as sinners. So Paul's going to show us just how impossible this is, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30 here, but what does that have to do with justification by grace alone? Well, He's revealing the absurdity of thinking we could earn salvation. It is a crazy, absurd notion. It is an impossible proposition. And so he's setting forth two ideas that are both manifestly impossible. It is just as impossible, first he says, for a person to be justified by their own works as it would be to ascend into heaven and drag Jesus down to earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead who rules in all authority and glory and power and majesty, who made all things and sustains all things with just a word, and we would presume to climb our way to heaven and rip him off of his throne. Paul says, that's how easy it would be for you to earn right standing with God, if you could do that. Now I could tell my wife if I'm out somewhere, hey, I'm going to stop at Walmart and I'm going to bring home some milk with me. I can do that because that's within my power. I can do it. What I can't tell her is call her and say, hey, this afternoon, I'll be back later, I'm going to ascend into heaven, I'm bringing Jesus back with me. That's not something, that's insane, that's not possible for me. So that's the first thing Paul says. Do you think you can earn your own righteousness with God through your works? It's as crazy as thinking you could do that. Secondly, he says it would be just as impossible for a person to be justified by their own works as it would be to descend into the depths of the abyss and bring Christ back from the dead. Again, when, when Jesus died, he did raise from the dead, but it wasn't because some man went down there and pulled him out. Obviously, far beyond our power, Completely impossible for us to bring anyone back from the grave. So, so what Paul's saying is, this is it's so impossible that it's totally absurd to, to consider this. For a person to think they could be saved through works of the law or through any act of our own, through any act of our, our will or our righteousness or our effort. It would be just as crazy to think that we're saved by our own will as it would be to think we could bring Jesus back from the dead or to think that we could rip him off of his throne and drag him down to earth with us. He came to us. We do not have the power to go get him. And in the same way, Paul had said this in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Paul says, he chose us, we did not choose him. We did not have the power to choose him, and so he chose us. And now he says, we don't have the power to make ourselves righteous. It is he who must make us righteous. So then in stark contrast to the impossibility of of earning salvation, Paul says this in verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What does it say? Well, what is it? This is why we can't just lift a verse out of its setting. You'll never understand what Paul's talking about if you just lift this verse out. What is it? It is what he said in verse 6. The righteousness based on faith says. So now he comes back around to that in verse 8 and says, okay, so what does it say? So this is the righteousness that is based on faith. And what is it that saving faith has to say? What saving faith has to say is this, if you want to approach God by your works, he is unreachable for you. But if you approach him by faith, he's near. That's what saving faith, that's the word that saving faith has to speak to us. The truth that Paul is proclaiming, namely the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it is not so high, so abstract, so deep that we can't understand it. That's what Paul's saying. It's near to you. That's a Hebrew turn of phrase, a Hebrew idiom. It means it's in your grasp. It's totally within your reach. It's right in front of you. It's not secret knowledge that only a privileged few can have. It's right in front of you. It is not so high and lofty and difficult that you can't understand it. We hold to the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity is just a confusing word that means it's basically simple. It means clear, see through. We believe that the essential teachings of Scripture, the gospel in particular, are simple truths. They're clear for us to see. They're not complex and confusing. They're not for the privileged few. You don't need a PhD in theology to understand the gospel, it's not too complex for you. You can understand it. So, this word of faith, Paul says, is simple. It's not complicated. To understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a difficult thing. A child can understand it. It's simple. But if you want to get it into your heart, if you want this truth that Paul's talking about, this this truth that is near you, this truth that reveals the God of, of power and majesty and grace and love, and compassion, and nearness, and activity in our lives, if you want that in your heart, if you want that to be the lifeblood that pumps through your veins, then it's going to take a life of devotion to the Word of God. Because that that sort of conviction leaks out of us. So it's a simple truth that all can understand, all can proclaim, but if we want it to be the driving engine of our entire lives, every day of our lives, then we must commit ourselves to the Word of God because this is where we go to find these truths. And Paul boils this whole message down. This whole message that faith gives, he boils it down to its essence in verse 9. Look with me. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's important to pay attention to Paul's language here. He he conjoins two elements here. He doesn't just say, if you confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. Now every Christian must confess. They must profess their faith in Christ, but no one has ever been saved merely by a profession of, of faith. We can look all over the place and see professions of faith, but a profession alone without the actual presence of saving faith will justify no one ever. One of the greatest dangers in the church today is false conversions. I'm convinced of it. It is people who have a profession of faith without the actual possession of saving faith, lives that are unchanged, a big part of this, frankly, it's the way we do evangelism. One of the questions I'm asked frequently over the last 10, 12 years is, Jason, why don't you do altar calls? Why do you hate the people so much that you don't do altar calls? It's usually the broken-hearted feeling behind the question. You know, altar calls where you, you walk to the front, you come to the altar or the stage. For starters, we're Protestants, so we don't have an altar. Christ is our altar. That's one reason. But you come forward, you raise your hand, whatever it is that you do to respond. Often I can remember from my my childhood, you'll pray a repeat after me prayer with someone if you want to to be saved, if you want to be converted and become a Christian. And I'm asked, and the question is well-meaning, And I never take the question lightly, why don't you do this? Because it's so much a part of our American culture. My first answer is always this, because it's completely absent from the New Testament. You never, ever, ever see anything remotely close to that happen in the Bible. It didn't come from the Bible. That's why. No one read the Bible and went, you know what we should do? Altar calls. No, that's never where it came from. Nothing remotely like that. Where it came from was Charles Finney. In the 19th century, in the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening should be called the Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening should be called the Bummer. <laughs> Finney was in all likelihood a false convert, not a Christian. He was a false teacher. He's a hero of, of the faith to many I don't believe the man was a Christian at all. He employed this practice on purpose as a manipulative tool to rev people's emotions up and get a bigger response from the crowd. Now, you may find all of this offensive, but that's just the historical fact. It just is the reality of where it came from. Now, here's what I'm not saying, that altar calls are sinful. Don't accuse me of that. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying anyone who's ever done an altar call, I know there's been a couple thousand of them that have taken place right here. I'm not saying anyone who's ever participated or done one is evil. I'm not saying nothing good has ever happened in anyone's life because of one. I am saying I don't think they're helpful. I don't think that's how salvation works. I think they often accidentally, of course, teach the wrong message. Confusing the physical act of coming forward with the spiritual act of actually coming to Christ. Offering false assurance of salvation on the grounds of mere profession of faith. There's a host of other reasons, including that there's one spot in the room more holy than the other, or we have to do some physical activity for God to, to work with us. We don't have time to get into all of those, but just to say... There are reasons why I don't think this is a helpful thing, and one of the biggest is I believe that false conversions are one of the most destructive and dangerous cancers in the church of Jesus Christ that are killing churches and killing people, and people are going to hell because they have such strong assurance of a faith that they don't actually possess. And so the evidence they look to is not a life transformed that testifies that they've been made new. The evidence they look to is a walk they took down an aisle when someone prayed for them. Just keep listening if I've already offended you so deeply over this. Just, let's just forget that. Keep listening to the rest of the sermon. Here's the truth, friends. Profession of faith alone will not justify you saying, I trust in Jesus Christ, shouting it from the rooftops, it will not justify you. It is possession of faith, not merely the profession of faith that saves. If we truly possess faith, we will profess faith. You must do that. So Paul says these two things. That's why Paul says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. He says, believe in your heart and not believe in your mind. For for years, one of my greatest pet peeves, one of the things that drives me absolutely insane is to be in a discussion with someone about the Word of God or about theology, and every sentence begins with, well, I feel... Or to sit in a Bible study, one of the most common Bible study tactics is to, to read a passage and then say, well, what does it mean to you, this passage? Friends in love, I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it means. I don't care what you feel about it. I want to know what's true. And it's these things that we do that subtly, well-meaningly undermine what Paul's actually teaching us here about how salvation works, what the Word of God is. It doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means. That's all that matters. Truth is not a sensual matter. Our feelings do not change truth at all. It's not subjective. It's not that I read something in Scripture and it might mean one thing to me and mean something else to you. No, there is one meaning. There's one meaning of any passage in Scripture and then a million applications. The, the, The passage we're reading this morning, it means one thing. And if you think it means something different than that, then you're wrong. It means a single thing. It doesn't mean I'm getting it right, but there is one true meaning. But the way that applies to each one of our individual lives, oh, it's countless, isn't it? It's countless the way that God uses His Word, the truth of His Word, the singular truth of His Word in so many different ways in each one of our lives. But it's not subjective. It's not a feeling and... And so what Paul reminds us is is there is this singular truth. It's not based on our feelings, but Paul reminds us then that real conviction always goes deeper than the intellect, than the understanding of truth, and goes all the way to the heart. This is essential for true salvation, and that's why the profession of faith is not enough. It has to get all the way in there to transform the heart. During the Reformation, the, the Reformers, because of this teaching of justification by faith alone we're accused of offering sort of a cheap grace, sort of an easy believism, if you know that word. Essentially, the same thing as we might see in some massive crusade where they just pronounce salvation over everyone who prays a repeat after me prayer, and we go, I don't think that's how it works. This is going to transform your life, or, or we're not believing that this happened. That's what the reformers were accused of because they were teaching salvation by grace through faith. The, the accusation was: anyone can say they believe in Jesus, but that's not a guarantee of true godliness. And so, this this question was raised: what are the necessary ingredients of saving faith? And Martin Luther basically justified it. He or uh, boiled it down to this. He says, the only kind of faith that justifies is a living faith. In other words, a faith that manifests itself in a life that's lived for God. Dead faith cannot justify anyone. That was his contention. And, and really, Luther was just following the teaching of James, wasn't he? James chapter 2, verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, faith that does not bear fruit in keeping with salvation is not saving faith. It is a false faith. So they identified three basic elements of saving faith during the Reformation. I think they're helpful for us. They used Latin words for it. Notitia is the first. Notitia. That's the basic information. That's the, the, the doctrine that is foundational to our faith. What are the... the the ABCs of what it is that we believe. There must be content to the faith that we embrace. This isn't Star Wars. We don't believe in some vague force out there, and and we just believe really, really hard, and that makes things happen. No, there's content to our faith. Our faith is doctrine-based, truth-based. It's propositional truth. So, for example, Christ rose from the grave. That's notitia. We must believe. We must have this truth. Now, our cultural thinking says, as we talked about last week, it doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters that you're sincere about it. Whatever you believe, as long as you really believe it sincerely, that's good enough. And the only problem with that is, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's not, not what the Bible says. It matters profoundly what you believe. You must have the right information. Verse 2 of chapter 10 told us clearly sincerity is not enough. Remember, they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Their, their zealousness got them nothing. True, saving faith must accord with right knowledge. Last week, I quoted Charles Spurgeon. You, you, a man may be sincere, but sincerely wrong. If you drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die if you sincerely believe in a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. Saving faith requires the right information. That's notitia. Second, assensus. That is intellectual assent. We agree with this truth that we've just received. The, the truth of the information, we agree that it's actually true. I must be convicted of the truthfulness of this doctrinal truth. So, notitia, Christ rose from the dead. A census takes the next step. I actually believe that Christ rose from the dead. According to James two nineteen, though, even if I am aware of the work of Jesus, even if I am intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm convinced that he died on the cross, I'm convinced that he rose from the dead for my sins, I would at that point be on level with the demons. If I had both of those things going on and only those things going on, all the demons, the devil himself, they know the truth about Christ, but they do not have saving faith. And so the right information and even believing that right information is not enough. We need this third step, fiducia. Fiducia means personal trust. Trust. I have the information, I am persuaded of its truthfulness, and now I put all of my trust in it. So again, notitia, Christ died for my sins, a census, I believe that Christ died for my sins, fiducia, I place my trust in Christ to save me. That that step, fiducia, I trust in Christ, and Christ alone for my salvation, that's the crucial element. It involves the intellect, yes, we have to have the right information, we have to, to be able to believe in the right information, but it goes beyond that to the heart and to the will so that the whole person is, is, is caught up in this experience of saving faith. And these things are not separate parts of salvation where we just take the one and the, and the other and we add them all together and in the soup we get Salvation. No, if these are things that we do, right, I have to search out the right information, I have to make myself believe it, and then I have to trust in it, and these are all works that I do, then what we're doing is getting ourselves back on that treadmill again of earning our own salvation. It becomes an addition of human works to salvation making it not a free gift but something that we earned. No, what what these things are are not the things we work hard to make sure are in place in our life. These things are the sure result of the Holy Spirit of God working through the gospel to regenerate the sinner and bring us to life and working in us, saving faith. So we don't look at this list of things and go, okay, i got to keep checking the boxes and make sure I do all these things so I get to be saved. No, we hold our life up against these things and say, has the Spirit of God done this in my life? If yes, then clearly he has saved me. If no, then what's going on with me? Where do I need to repent of sin? Where am I walking in unbelief and unfaithfulness, just like these Jews, maybe zealous for God, but not according to true knowledge? But Paul says, if these things are happening, the logical conclusion is, the second half of verse 9, you will be saved. It's a guarantee. If you hold your life up to this, and you see that the Spirit of God is working these things in your life, you will be saved. Why is it such a guarantee? Well, it's because the only people who do this are Christians. It's the only way you could do it. The, the, the only way this could happen is for God to have worked salvation in you. Otherwise, you could not. You could not have these things in, at work in your life, particularly that third step. Remember Paul's two big metaphors throughout the book of Romans as we have gone through? All of humanity, he has two, two pictures he likes to use. One is slavery. And the other is A corpse. What do those two things have in common? Well, they're both completely helpless. Neither one can do anything to to free themselves or to save themselves. There is no possible way you could do this on your own. You can't have this belief in your heart because your heart is dead. So if you do have it, that means God made you alive. Sort of Paul's logic here in all this. John 6, verse 44. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. Who comes to Jesus? Only those who are drawn by the Father. No one else. And what does he do with every single person who the Father draws to him? I will raise him up on that last day. If you have if you have come to Jesus in saving faith, it means that the Father has done this in you by the spirit and you are his. You are saved. That's the same logic Paul's using here as what Jesus used in John chapter 6. Going on then verse 10, he says, "For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved." But the scripture says, "Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame." If you have true saving faith, far from this easy believism that says repeat after me and then go live your life. But you did it. You're in. No, far from that. If you have true saving faith, it will have a result in your actions. It is guaranteed. It is for sure. You will bear fruit of salvation. In this case, Paul points to confessing Christ as Lord. This fruit Even this confession does not cause salvation like some magical incantation, but it is necessary. It is a necessary fruit of salvation. In other words, it it will happen. It is sure fruit. So this confession of Christ as Lord is not what causes salvation, but anyone who has been saved is going to make this confession. It is the result of salvation. And this is the promise then, and it's glorious. If you put your trust in Christ. Truly, from the heart, you will never be put to shame. How good does that sound? Specifically, the shame of being turned away by God is never going to happen. I've gone to amusement parks to get on roller coasters as a not small man. And sometimes I uh, w- w- walked my way up thinking, am I going to have a walk of shame in my near future? Not the one that comes after you've done the ride and you get off, but the one where they go, you're too fat. We're glad you're here. Too fat to ride this ride, sorry. You're never going to get turned away by the Father. You are never going to be turned away by the Father if you have trusted truly from the heart in Christ there will never be that moment where he says to you, depart from me. No, no, no. That's not what's in store for you, Christian. This is a, a mind-blowing concept. You know yourself. You know there are things about you that are humiliating if other people knew. Things you've done. Things you've said. Thoughts that you still think. Oh, if anybody knew this. How ashamed. But when you stand before the throne of the thrice holy God, the judge of all the universe, there will be no embarrassment for you. There will be no shame for you. I can remember growing up and hearing these horror stories in youth group and Sunday school about, you stand before God and your whole life plays on the screen and won't you be embarrassed about the choices you've made? That's a lie that youth group leaders tell to scare kids into behaving better there will be no shame, no embarrassment. He, he, he says in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. That's what you'll get, not, not shame, riches. Riches. All the riches of God poured out on you in that moment. All the joy of God. I can remember being a freshman in college, taking biology one, pretty sure it was going to cost me my tennis scholarship because I was so terrible. I also played a lot of ping pong and didn't go to class. (laughs) I went and knocked on the professor's door. It was this big, imposing, bearded, scientific man. And I said, can you tell me what my final grade is in this class? And, of course, this is before electricity or computers. And He gets his ledger out, and he runs his finger down to my name, and he, he runs his finger across, and it says D+. Plus. And he doesn't even say it. He just turns it. And he gives me this condescending look, like, aren't you ashamed? And I said, all right, see you later. We did it, guys. We passed. <laughs> Friends, none of God's people will enter into heaven with a condescending head shake. Oh, you made it by the skin of your teeth. No, no, no. He will bestow his riches on all who call on him. Isn't that glorious? He'll welcome you with song. The, the God who made and sustains all things, the righteous judge of the universe, who is filled with wrath towards sinners, of whom you are one, because of Christ's righteousness and a gift you didn't earn of the Spirit of God working faith in you, that same God who, who did all the work is going to welcome you with song. Because he'll look at you and he'll see Christ's righteousness. That's all. Nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, praise God for his grace. It says in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, we need to be careful with scripture. Paul doesn't make this statement in a vacuum. We have to take into account the context it's given. This verse has been abused to promote what is basically an easy believism. It just says, say these right words, and that's all you need. He's not saying that anyone in a time of need who hollers, Jesus, take the wheel, is now saved. That's not what it means to call on Jesus. What what is Paul saying? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord in a certain way, in the terms in which he has just explained what it means to call on the Lord. In other words, a calling on him that comes from the heart a genuine, authentic reaching of the heart for the Savior, that person will never, ever, ever be denied. All of them who call on the name of the Lord in that way will be saved. And so here's what that means for you, friend. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You don't need to figure out you don't need to figure out the eternal details from God's perspective, this, this election from eternity past that Paul has talked about. You don't need to figure any of that out when it comes to you. You need to call on the name of the Lord. That, that's what that means. So the reality is every person in this room has a heart problem. So, some of you, your spiritual heart is dead. It's not alive. That, that, in fact, is the truest thing about you. You may not know that. But the truest thing about you is that you're dead in every way that matters. There's only one way to find life. There's only one way to find salvation, and that is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. All the other ways are shut. None of the other ways even exist. No matter what your heart might tell you, no matter what this world might tell you, for others of us, God has hes made you alive, but you're weak. He's made you alive, but your faith leaks. The truth is we all need to hear the gospel. We all need to believe the gospel. We all need to call on the name of the Lord. We all need to submit ourselves and entrust ourselves to this saving gospel and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ, whose gospel message it is. The gospel is not just the means by which we're saved from the wrath of God. It is also the means by which God pours his riches out on us. When the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts, we're, we're changed. We're transformed. We live obedient lives, not perfectly. We all sin, but the testimony of our lives is we've been changed. We've been made new. We have a new heart, a new mind, new desires, a new will. This faith that is a gift from God comes alive in our hearts and God pours his riches out on us and the greatest riches that God could ever pour out, that God even possesses to pour out, is himself. God gives us himself. What more glorious thing is there than that? Christ is near to us. God is not far off from all who call on him. And so let's today call on him. Would that every person who hears my voice would call on the name of the Lord? What a gift it is. How kind God is to us to allow us to call on him and then to be near to us when we do. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your astounding grace. Lord, thank you for the promises of your gospel that are better than we could ever imagine or hope for, uh, better than anything our minds could conceive. Thank you, Lord, that, that sinners like me, like us, can come before your throne boldly and in confidence knowing that the righteousness of your Son has been given to us as a free gift and that our sin has been fully atoned for. And we do pray, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in our faithfulness, or that we would live lives that please you, that testify to this dark and dead world, that you, our God, are alive, and that you rule, and that you reign, and that you save even sinners like us. Give us boldness in proclaiming this gospel, this message that you have made for us so simple and so understandable. yet we could never fathom the depths of the riches of the glory that's wrapped up in it. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us. And I pray in particular, Lord, for all here who don't know you, especially those who think that they do, that you by your spirit and your kindness would convict them of their desperate condition, cause them to turn their eyes to you and to trust in you, give you Give to them the gift of saving faith. Give to them the gift of repentance from sin. Give to them the gift of trust in Christ alone. Give to them the gift of your precious Holy Spirit to dwell within them and transform them, even as you have done for so many of us. Pray also for my brothers and sisters, those whom you have saved who are struggling in their faith. They've been walking through a difficult time where it feels like you're not near them, I pray by your Spirit now, you would, you would cause a settled peace to come into their hearts that knows that if God is for us, who could be against us? That you've not left them alone in their struggle, that you are in fact, as our brother Paul says in Romans chapter 8, working even in those situations for their eternal good. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause each one of us to trust in you more in all of life's trials and sufferings. Thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.